You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. glad you're here. Um, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, and um, we are focusing on um, this mystery throughout the whole book, which is, uh, who is this man um, that you're introduced to and um, that is described in story after story after story? And in many ways, it's one of those, um, it's one of those books that has this big reveal, that you don't really know who this is um, until the end. And, and when I was growing up, the big movie where it had this huge plot twist and this huge revelation at the end of it was, um, it was called The Usual Suspects. 
I think there's other movies that are like that, but um, the, the Usual Suspects is the best I've ever seen. Um, you know, Kevin Spacey is the main actor, he's a great actor, one of his first big movies. And so the whole movie is about who is this Kaiser Sose, this kind of crime lord um, that's doing all these things. You don't, and until the very end, you can't believe who it is when the whole thing is revealed. Um, and in the, in the Gospel of Mark, you just keep getting hint after hint after hint. But you don't really know uh, who this person is that um, Mark continues to describe. It's, like, it's kind of like a mystery. And um, one part of the mystery is that he keeps, um, Jesus keeps telling these stories. These really short, they're not even really stories. They're, they're tiny, sometimes they're just aphorisms, little quick sayings. There's, there's always an analogy, always some comparison. He loved to compare things. So he spoke with metaphors all the time, with imagery all the time. And in this particular story, you get four of them. First of all, you get this lamp. He compares the kingdom of God to a lamp. He's always comparing it to a kingdom of God. And you don't even really know who the king is or what exactly the kingdom is, but he keeps talking about this kingdom. And you have to infer as a reader um, that he is the king. He never comes out and just says, uh, till the very end, I am the king, but keeps talking about the kingdom of God. It's like, it's like a, a lamp that is brought into a room. And you would never hide this lamp under a basket. It's like this uh, measuring scoop. You know, you, where you, it's this two-gallon bucket that you, you scoop out grain. And um, with the measure you use, uh, it would measure to you. That's the second parable or aphorism. The third is the seed that the farmer sows and it grows by itself. Nobody knows how it grows. It grows autom- automatically. Automaton is the Greek word there. It grows, has the power in itself to grow. And then finally, this tiny little mustard seed uh, that grows up into the, this mighty tree that spreads out all over the world. So those are the four stories. And um, what he's doing with stories, he's partly weeding out those who are really interested and those who are merely entertained by him. Um, he's weeding out the people who are there just for the miracles, uh, to see him do magic tricks. They're just coming to, uh, to see a spectacle from those who really want to know who is this person. I really want to know the truth. So that's what, that's what these stories are doing. It's hints and clues along the way to weed out the people that really want to be part of his kingdom and then those who are actually not that interested. Um, they're just there for the fireworks. So um, I want to talk about two things, the nature of the kingdom that is implied by these parables. One is that clearly he wants a group of people who really, really care. Who are not here because they're manipulated by things. They're not coerced by anything. They're not brainwashed by anything. He's not hyping himself up. He's not um, trying to close a deal. He wants a kingdom of very free people. It's it's clear that he wants you to be here freely. Uh, That if you don't have any interest in in Christianity, there's no reason to be here at all. Um, The idea of a state forcing people to be Christians is anathema to what Jesus came to do. He came to persuade people to throw out these seeds, scatter seeds, and just see who wanted to come. So it's a kingdom of free subjects, no coercion. He was the least manipulative teacher of all time. No manipulation at all. He didn't threaten people with hell. You better believe you're going to hell. He talked about hell, but he wasn't threatening people. He wasn't trying to bring them in by threats of hell. It's a kingdom of free subjects, free citizens. Number two, because it's that kind of kingdom, it grows in a very slow way. The way that you would expect something like that to grow, which is not just sudden burst of growth, you know, not, not like a wheat field coming up, more like a, a bonsai tree. You know, each individual person coming freely and then growing slowly. 
but inevitably and large in a large way. So those two things, it's a, it, because it's a kingdom of free subjects and citizens, it is therefore going to grow in a very strange, uh, slow, deliberate, but inexorable way. It will not stop ever growing. So first of all, the freedom. Um, first parable is the lamp, verse 21. Is a lamp brought into a room to be placed under a basket? Now, it's obviously an absurdity. He's spoken this way a lot. Uh, he, he said these things that were absolutely absurd. You would never bring a lamp into a room to put it under a basket. It'd be like having a Christmas tree. You bring it into your house. You put it behind the fridge. You, know, you would never go to the trouble to buy a Christmas tree and put it behind your refrigerator. If you had a lamp, uh, if you had a lamp in, the, in the ancient world, it was costly. It wasn't like buying a light bulb. There was oil involved. It was a little clay oil lamp. You had to light it. Uh, you really cared about how much oil you burned. You would put it high on a stand. And Jesus actually says, I, he says that the lamp comes into the room. So in Greek, it's not, uh, is a lamp brought into a room? But he said, literally, does a lamp come into a room? So he's personifying a lamp. And uh, if you have seen Beauty and the Beast, you know there is a personified lamp named Lumiere. And uh, that's a good depiction of what he was. He walked into the room and he said, here I am. I'm here to light up the world. So he comes as a lamp and he comes to light up the world. Every man, woman and child, every tribe, language, people and nation. That's why he's here. He came to illuminate, but but he wanted it to be in such a way that you come to him freely because he knows that if you come freely, it will have great sticking power. He knows that if you're coerced, it will not have any sticking power. Um, if, you, if you come to a church because it's a spectacle and you feel great about yourself while you're there and it gives you, you know, these uh, and you, you, you know, you're uh, you're on top of the world. You have this mountaintop spiritual experience. But if you go out into the, the rest of your week and it doesn't really change you, uh, that's not going to actually have any sticking power. That's emotional manipulation. Um, he says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear. Uh, let him hear. I, I want people who are interested. I want people who have ears to hear what I'm saying. To, to see behind what I'm saying to the, to the reality of, that is the kingdom. So Satan took him up on a mountain. If you know this, uh, the temptation stories of Jesus, Satan, uh, the devil, the enemy takes Jesus up onto a mountain. And he says, I can give you all the kings of the world. Uh, you don't have to go through the cross You don't have to do any of that stuff that's so painful. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will simply bow down to me. I can make them, I can force them, I can brainwash. I've already brainwashed them. I can get them to turn to you. Just bow down to me and I'll give them all to you. And Jesus says, no deal. I'm not interested in any kind of coercion like that. I want followers who really want me. So it's exactly the opposite of Putin, who is brainwashing people with propaganda and disinformation. And he's trying to tell them lies so that they will stick with him. It's like Zelensky. You know, he put the president of Ukraine. He puts out these, uh, these very witty, inspiring, courageous little videos where he's articulate. And, and Jesus says, pay attention. Um, pay attention. Because he's like an escape room. You have to think carefully. When you, when you encounter Jesus, uh, it's not going to be simple. There's going to be clues along the way. And you have to follow the clues to follow him. And that asks the question, it begs the question for all of us, you know, how interested really are you right now in your life? Why are you here right now? What brought you to church? What is your interest level? Are you here uh, for an emotional high or to feel good uh, or to have a good life so that your life will go well? 
so that you can make good grades or make a lot of money or your kids will do really well or you'll have friends. Are you here to have friends? Are you here to make friends? None of those are bad things to want, but Jesus wants people who are here because they want to know the truth. Because they want to know what they're like and what God is like and what kind of world they live in and what happens after you die and where did I come from and where am I going and where is the whole world going? He wants people who want the truth because he's a lamp. And he compares our interest in the truth to a measuring scoop. Um, He says in verse 25, to the one who has, more will be given. Because if you have a really big measuring scoop, if you really want him and you stick in that giant measuring scoop into that huge basket of grain, then you will have more and then you'll want more because you have more. I kind of thought of it like buying coffee. And if you go to a really fancy place like the Fresh Market um, and you buy like real beans, I mean, I don't know anything about coffee. I don't drink coffee. But apparently if you buy really good coffee beans, you have, they have those scoopers and you can put in the scooper and if you, have a, you can choose the size of the scooper, whether you want a really big or a really small one. You know, just have a few little beans or a huge basket of beans. And if you pick a, a huge scoop and you get a lot of coffee and you drink that coffee and you acquire a taste for that coffee and you enjoy and learn how to love it, you will want more of that coffee. And the more you know the truth and want the truth and read the Bible and study the Bible and go hear sermons and just dig into the word, um, the more you're going to want it. It's like a cow chewing on cud. They just chew it over and over and over again. And they get all the nutrients slowly as they chew it. And so if you acquire this taste for this special kind of blend that is Jesus, that is the kingdom, you're going to want more. He's not cruel when he says to the one who has more will be given. It's just a principle of life. That if you're really interested in him, it's just going to grow by compound interest. And if you don't really want him, you've got a little tiny scooper, and you don't really require this taste for this coffee, then you're just going to lose interest. So Jesus is saying, learn to love the truth, and the more you get, the more you'll want. And again, he's not, he's not requiring you to find it immediately delicious. You might have a hard time acquiring this taste. He doesn't need you to immediately have um, this huge desire for what he's offering. Um, he says um, in verse 33, Mark says that with many parables, he spoke to them as they were able to hear. So he's, he's taking it. He's, he's, it's like a mother speaking to her child. You know, he come, she comes down to the level of the child and kind of lisps like the child talks in a baby way like the child talks. He, he, he speaks in parables because he, he's lisping to us as we are able to hear. Verse 33. He wants, he wants a kingdom of free subjects, but he is willing to get down on your level and communicate to you on your level. That's why he uses parables. They beckon us and they entice us. They give us a taste for the kingdom. They don't bludgeon us with truth. You know, the proposition after proposition after proposition they're, they're enticing. They're mysterious. They, they're, it's like, um, this is the reason I love Narnia and the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Harry Potter. Because these are tales that are told. And you can tell someone who's not a believer about the story of Star Wars, about Harry Potter, about Aslan, about Frodo. And it will give them a sense of what the gospel is like without pushing too much. And so this is what, as we are able to hear, he speaks to us on our level. He comes down to our level and he says, I want you to want to know the truth. And I will entice you. I'll be willing to give you these stories that entice you and make you want it to be true. You've got to want it to be true before you really investigate whether it's true. And that's what these parables are doing. 
And here's the thing, as Christians, why do we assume, I mean, I assume this a lot of times. I assume that for some reason when I tell someone the gospel, they're not really going to like it. They might be offended by it. Um, that it's not really going to be that enticing or that interesting to them. Why do we assume that? We, we have by far the best story ever, ever written. Every good story is only a reflection of this story. The Bible from the beginning to the end is this amazing story of God's love and redemption in the midst of the ultimate tragedy. And we have this story and yet we don't feel like it's really going to produce fruit when we speak it to people. But the fact is, no matter how poorly you say it, no matter how pitiful the presentation of the gospel is, it is inherently beautiful and powerful. And you don't need to pressure someone or guilt them. You don't have to hype up the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. You don't have to have a big dark room with smoke machines and concert lighting and soundboards and altar calls. He was not a slick salesman at all. He did not try to close deals. He said, I want a kingdom of free subjects who really want to want me. Not coercion, not marketing, but freedom. Come freely. That's the first point. The second point is because of that very fact, um, you have this type of growth that is very strange. And can be very discouraging if you're a pastor. Because it does not grow the way that you want it to grow. You can make it grow the way you want it to grow through manipulation. Through marketing techniques. You can. But it won't really be the kingdom growing. It'll be manipulating people emotionally. So this is the kind of growth he's talking about is really deep roots. Really deep roots for this giant tree that lasts 2,000 years. There's actually a tree in California that is 2,000 years old. So it was... It was started the, the, the day Jesus died, essentially, or the year, you know, roughly, the decade, let's say the decade. It's called the General Sherman tree. It's a huge tree, and it has been growing ever since Jesus has been growing, and that's what he was looking for. He was not going to start something that just exploded. It, it, it grew slowly, but it, it, it grew inexorably. It, ne- it never stopped growing. So that's the second point, the kingdom of slow growth. I, I read, um, or I listened to the... Uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, it's about this church in Seattle that it grew to 15,000. But when, when the pastor was asked to leave, within three months it was gone. And that's what Jesus did not want. He, he did not want a community that was built on a personality. He wanted a kingdom of people who were really deeply interested and would stick. They would stick with it. So in verse 26 he says, The kingdom is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, seeds are so powerful and so living and so active that archaeologists have dug up seeds that are very, very old and find they still produce fruit. They're almost indestructible. And that's the point here, that um, this seed sprouts and grows without the farmer even knowing how it grows. So verse 26, the farmer sleeps and he rises day and night and the seed sprouts and grows while he's doing nothing. The farmer is passive. He's on his bed. He's snoring. There's no mention of the farmer's work in this parable intentionally. And that's because the seed is so powerful. It's automatic. It has power in itself. Again, the story is so captivating inherently that we can tell it really poorly and still it's amazing. Luther said, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, he said, while I slept, God reformed the church. Because he knew that it wasn't about him at all. He was just, he just re- he rediscovered the seed, and he just threw it out there. And this is really good news for an anxious pastor 
someone who can't sleep very well uh, because their church is not growing. Or it's also very good news for a parent, a parent whose child does not seem to be growing, who might seem to be regressing. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds your household, that's not the bricks and mortar, that's, that's the children, that's the grandchildren, the household. Unless the Lord builds the household, the parents labor in vain. That's actually very encouraging. Unless the Lord does the deep underground work, you can, and we should do our best to parent well. But if he doesn't do anything, there's no hope. He's got to do the stuff that goes down beneath the surface. The psalmist says, in vain do you go to sleep late and rise early, eating the, branches, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. That's a great thing to remember when you're worried that nothing's happening down below the surface. Because he can get down to places in the brain that we cannot go. Uh, we can talk and talk and talk and talk powerfully and emotionally and try to exhort. And yet he only can get down to the places that it really counts. Even the Apostle Paul said, all I did was plant. And this other guy came along named Apollos and he just watered. But only God gives the growth. And so Paul said, stop comparing me and Apollos. Don't say who's the best preacher. That's, that's foolishness because the power is in the word. And you say, I, I don't see anything happening. And God says, well, neither did the farmer. The farmer doesn't know anything. The farmer is not a botanist. It says he does not know how it grows in verse 27. It's, it's completely mysterious to him. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like a wind that blows where it wills. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. We don't have any control over these things. Uh, we just scatter the seed and God does the growth. And you know, you, uh, you, you don't know what God is up to and the, the lives of the people that you pray for. And I know a lot of you pray for people and have prayed for years, especially family members. And we don't see anything and we're like, oh, nothing's happening. Well, we, we don't know under the ground. It always starts down deep because it is a seed. And oftentimes you don't see anything come up for a long time. But um, God is often up to something. There's something happening that we don't understand. You know, your child could be uh, at some kind of camp weeping for love of Christ. And you wouldn't even know it. You might not ever hear about it. Especially if it's a guy. If you have, if you have a, a boy, if you have a, a, a male child, you might not ever hear about it. Um, but, you know, you, you could be wondering, what is going on with my child? And... And they're reading the Bible off by themselves. Or they're listening to Christian music all the time. Or, you know, whatever it is. Um, Marjorie had no idea, my wife, that my heart was melting when she was just telling me about her faith when I, when I met her. Uh, she, she did not know what was... She was just kind of talking. Talking about her own faith. The power is in the seed. It says in verse 28, The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear and the full grain. So it's a slow process. First the ear... And, and then the blade, uh, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain comes out. It takes time. It's not easy. Sometimes people have said to me, I can't believe you planted a church. And I think that's not a compliment. I think that's saying, like, you don't seem like the type of guy that's capable of planting a church. And my point would be um, that planting is not very hard to do because if you plant grass, like if you go out and plant grass this spring, what you do is you take this thing and you put seed in it and you go like this and you walk around. So planting is not hard to do. Uh, what's hard to do is to grow something. And only God can do that. Uh, only God gives growth. Uh, in the kingdom, the effects are much, much greater than the causes. Um, 
Because we wield these weapons that are just powerful and we have no idea. You know, we, it's like little kids with these massive uh, stinger missiles that are walking around with huge amounts of power and impact and often are not, have no idea what to do with this contraption. And we, we have this gospel that is so rich and beautiful and powerful, and yet we just keep, keep it to ourselves. We don't say anything. But, you know, one stray sentence and someone might get saved. Just throwing one thing out there. Uh, Jesus said in verse 31, My kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed which sown into the ground is the smallest of all the seeds, but then produces this massive tree. Verse 31. It's like a, a tiny little mustard seed. So let me encourage you. I hope I have been encouraging you, but uh, you might share your struggle with a friend. Just talk about what you're struggling with in terms of your sin or your, 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 your guilt. Maybe your fears, your anxieties. Uh, it could be a very brief uh, FaceTime call or maybe just really quick conversation with someone at a, at a meal. And then that, a person might come to you days later and say, you know, that conversation really changed my day. It really turned my week around. And we've probably all had this happen to us where you, you just throw something out there and it sprouts and grows by itself because the power is not in you. It's in the thing you're talking about. Or you maybe in an email include a little Bible verse and uh, for a long time you don't really think anything, anything of it at all. And then you get a handwritten note, you know, maybe a year later and you say that verse, someone says that verse changed my life. Again, the power is in the verse. It's in the logic of the thing. It's in the structure of the story. It's not you. It's not your great handwriting. It's not your eloquence. It's the gospel. Or you pray a really brief, impatient prayer while you're looking at your watch because, you know, somebody asked you to pray and you don't think anything of it. You forget about it. And then again, you know, a day later, the person's like, I, I'm so thankful that you prayed that prayer for me. Uh, that has really changed my attitude completely. I got an email right before I got here from someone who was here many years ago. And she was like, thank you for the impact you made on me in my time of greatest testing. I was like, I was close to... Losing it. And, uh, and I think I met this person maybe like three times. And I don't even know if I said many things. But that's what I'm talking about. You, you, just, you just show up as a believer. You might not even say many things at all. You might even just end by saying, I'm going to pray for you. And yet just being there in their presence. It's not about stadiums and screens and huge gatherings. It's about like these you know, kitchens, conversations. It's about coffee houses. You know, typing on your phone. Zechariah says, uh, Zechariah 410, I love this uh, quote. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the little things that actually have a huge impact. Because Jesus says in verse 32, when it is sown, it grows and becomes larger than all the plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And he's referring to what a lot of ancient emperors talked about, which they would compare their empires to a giant tree, and they would compare the nations that are in their empire to little birds that find nests in their tree. So Jesus is explicitly appropriating that image of this giant tree, and is saying, he's saying, I am the worldwide kingdom, and all the different nations of the world will come and find rest in my branches. He's telling this to a group of like 40 people. He's a, he's a, he's a very poor uh, ex-carpenter rabbi with no credentials. He's talking to these people who are fishermen for the most part, who have almost no power. And he's saying to these people, um, yeah, I am, this, I am this seed. I am actually a king, this eternal king. And one day, every nation of the world will find rest in my branches. 
And, uh, and who could have ever uh, predicted? You know, what was the over-under on that prediction? I mean, who would have ever have thought that that could be true? And yet you go today to the most remote island in the South Pacific, and you're probably going to hear about Jesus. You're gonna, someone there is going to know about him. Or you go to, the, uh, to, to Alaska, you know, the, the, the most remote village, fishing village in Alaska, or down to Patagonia, uh, or Cape Town. All over the world, every single corner of the globe, every single nation has found shade uh, from this great tree that spread from these tiny little band of people. And, um, you know, the poor have found shelter in his shade. Uh, the, the most vulnerable uh, women who used to have no rights at all have been protected and have rights all around the world today because of Jesus. I mean, maybe not explicitly, but the revolution started there for sure. The hungry have been fed by him. The sick have been healed by him. The church has made major mistakes, but where they've made mistakes, they're mistakes against the tune that Jesus sang. They're, 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 they're mistakes because we're not following him. And it all started with this, this amazing death and resurrection that we celebrate at this table. The seed is, this is, he compares himself to, unless the seed is planted in the ground and dies, it cannot bear any fruit. And in this table, we have this uh, story, the depiction of the story, where Jesus died and was buried. Remember, we love these rascals.